Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow, And I'm Jesse Spur. And today we are joined by Sue Chaffee, who is the nurse practitioner of Cancer Care Services, looking specifically at emergent care. Welcome, Sue. Good morning, everyone. And we're going to talk about the acute presentation of the chronic patient. So this is relevant to across all areas of nursing. Yeah, and I think it's also really interesting where Sue is working in a primarily focused on long-term therapy, but looking at the emergent presentations within that. So you've kind of gone niche within a niche. Yeah. We'll rewind right back to the start. How did you get into nursing and how's the what's the career path to nurse practitioner in this niche area of cancer care been like? Um, long, I'm going to say, from the, from the get-go. Um, I'm someone who... Didn't really think about doing nursing when I first started. So I came out of school and I think it was the guidance officer who said, you know, how about nursing? I wasn't going to get an OP1 for physio. So I went, okay then. So at 17, I left my small country town and came to Brisbane to go to uni. And I started nursing and it's just something that has always fit. Like it's always just been something that I've been not so good at, but it just, I never had to think about it. It was just an easy thing. Um, I did most of my um, clinical placements here at the Royal and in cancer care. So um, I did a lot of my time in 4D, which doesn't exist anymore, the the old Nightingale wards. And it was really a place where I learnt the basics, the fundamentals of good nursing care. There was um, Sister Curran, she sticks in my mind. (laughs) Um, And she taught you and you had no doubt in your mind that things that were important were your patient was clean, they were pain-free, pressure areas, clean space, basic stuff first. And it's just, it's always stuck with me and does now. I'm a stickler for the little things now that, you know, do the basics really well. Everything else will come after that. So I did, I was here for a few years in my grad year and then a few years after that and then I went to the PA, it was a bit closer to home, always in cancer care. I went overseas for a few years, travelled around, we lived in Bath, which was lovely. I found I couldn't quite do cancer care in the UK. It was a little bit too different for me and maybe I was young and headstrong. Uh, so, but that's a, a good thing because it pushed me to do something else and I, I went out and did medical admissions, did a bit of crit care, a bit of ED, a bit of, bit of something different and it, it really sparked my interest to do more. I wanted to have more out of this, this career that I had and I came home with the intentions of, of doing that more but you know, every now and then life gets in the way and I had two children and, you know, you do shift work backwards and forwards and you're trying to juggle life and all of a sudden it's 10 years later and you have children who are going to school and nursing's fantastic. I'm so, I'm so very passionate about this career because it allows you to live but it also gives you every aspect of life as well if you let it. So yeah. it gives you a, 
gives you a good career. It gives you a good income. It allows you to come and go into it as you need to. It challenges you every day, but it also gives you that that connection with people that is invaluable in, in life in general. So it, I, I love nursing. I think it's just the best thing ever. Yeah. It's a, such a hum... Working in healthcare, mm. it gives you the greatest elements of life, the most challenging, distressing elements of life and in this privilege where people yep. who are strangers embrace you and Absolutely. allow you in on the worst days of their lives. I yep. agree. It's such a, it can be such a gift. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. But I did, I did lots of, in cancer care, I did outpatients, inpatients, heme, onc. I went into trials as well. And then the opportunity to go that little bit further, like I wanted to do previously, I was going to go do medicine, but um, the nurse practitioner came, sort of landed in my lap and I took it. And it was just good chance and fortune and situation, COVID helped. Um, and a lot of hard work, <laughs> Sue. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. Well, it's not, you don't get anything with that hard work, right? Yeah. So it just, it came. So now, and then I had the opportunity to come and apply for this job here and I now work within this amazing team of people, executive team of people in the service line who are all driven to make the best out of the patient experience. And it, we're driven like from the top. It's not, I've never worked within a group of executive team who are all all pointing towards the same way and it's it's so rewarding. I love it. Yeah, there is definitely, like I started as a new grad in oncology and there's kind of a mission clarity about the work in cancer care services. I, yep. I really haven't, I, I think the only other area I've found that has been in intensive care. Yep. So it, it's, it, it definitely helps with culture, culture formation. It helps with really identifying those niche areas that can be of benefit for advanced practice nursing roles. And I think as well the, to get towards the topic that we're going to be focusing on is there's an ownership of the acute management of patients that have a chronic disease that you're also supporting them with, yep. which is very different to a lot of other areas. We try and keep oncology patients out of intensive care because it's not a great place for their health. Definitely a theme, Jesse. We try and keep oncology patients out of ED, out of um, out of ICU, out of theatres, out of out of everything. So yeah. yeah, yeah, we do. We try to hang on to them. So that leads us really beautifully to your number one point. Can you please define, you know, what is the difference between acute care and chronic care, particularly for people who are chronically ill? Well, when I, you gave me this topic and I thought, how am I going to think about this? And acute versus chronic, I think probably of a few scenarios. So you look at that acute illness, which becomes chronic. So someone who presents very unwell to then have a lifelong chronic illness. Um, acute illness, it is an exacerbation of a, a chronic illness, so whether that's an infective cause or non-infective cause. And then acute illness that is complicated by underlying chronic illness. So they all sort of interplay together, but the chronic illness is the bit that never goes away. So I think we've all got a pretty good grasp of what acute illness looks like. It's a, a rapid onset of deteriorating health status, which requires immediate intervention. Um, however, chronic illness brings with it a whole bucket of issues that challenge us and also the health system of how we manage that. And cancer care is a really, it's, it's a very good example of chronic illness, which is its own chronic illness but can also be exacerbated by underlying chronic illness in the background. Mm. Very rarely do we have people who walk in the door without a, you know, a suitcase full of other things that they bring with them and now they have 
a cancer diagnosis and we throw every bit of treatment and then, you know, a decent amount of side effect burden in amongst that as well and the balance sometimes is very difficult. So the Australian Institute of Health, um, they look at 10 common chronic illnesses, so things like arthritis and asthma. Back problems is pretty huge. There's cancer, chronic kidney disease, chronic obstructive airways, diabetes, mental health, osteoporosis, and then your cardiac issues. And if you think about your patients, there's probably not someone, anyone who hasn't got a, a few of those things that come along. The most common, as I think every second person has at least one chronic illness, the most common being mental health um, and behavioural conditions, followed by back pain, something that's sometimes quite benign, and arthritis. So that's fantastic, Sue, because, you know, this podcast has actually looked at a number of those chronic illnesses and we ask people, you know, to go back and have a listen to those um, because they're so pervasive in the community. So we might sort of move to, to talking about I guess in less hypothetical terms and look at a case where we've got a, an acute problem superimposed on a chronic illness to sort of start to segue into the rest of the podcast. Yeah, so if you think about um, just common, if I go gen med admissions, so someone who is elderly, say, and they present with a community-acquired pneumonia and they're having IV antibiotics, they're very rarely not going to have other things in the background which they come with their history. So they might have... COPD and that will affect the way that they can breathe well and they can um, gas exchange and they might then the antibiotics if they've got a cardiac history might impact upon their renal function and it's it's understanding the domino effect of one acute illness which then impacts upon the other things in the background which then cause your patient to be in a holistic way unwell. Yeah. It then directly impacts upon their recovery and how they will then be able to be discharged back to their normal status. I think it's really important to to remember that acute illness is only half the picture and the chronic illness is probably the bigger half of the the background that we should be considering. In cancer care, the underlying um, chronic illness has a direct influence on what treatment we offer. It can influence things that we have to take off the table because perhaps they don't have the kidney function to support it or perhaps their their cardiac function won't support the ongoing treatment that they're going to need to have. It's It dictates how a person will tolerate the treatment and potentially for us the exacerbation of chronic illness underneath is very high so we can give treatment but we can cause lots of other issues along the way. It's definitely a, a balancing act. And I, I guess with the complexity of healthcare, modern healthcare now, where people are coming in with like acute problems that we're trying to predict an estimated date of discharge. We're trying to make patients fit a pattern so that we can have predictable workflows around those patients. Often that can lead to applying the wrong pattern to the wrong patient at the wrong time and it causing more problems. We're trying to kind of get to, this is a massive problem with massive complexity and kind of gets at the root of some of the struggles that we have in contemporary modern nursing. Healthcare in general. Yeah, healthcare. Um, so we're going to try and shrink the problem into the <laughs> rest of your points to just some generalizable sort of skills for approaching the chronically ill patient presenting in an acute health setting. Yep. So that goes to my second point. The biggest thing that I can encourage you to do is to educate yourself. You, we have this absolute blessed 
situation now where education is at our fingertips at every point. There's so much accessible knowledge out there and it's so easy to just look something up. Like if you've got a patient in front of you and I will encourage this to everybody, like educating yourself is easy. You can read articles, you can listen to podcasts, you can do um, whatever it needs, read a, do a course, read a textbook. But there's nothing beats, I don't think, the patient in front of you who has the symptoms, is having the treatment, is you can see them, you can anchor into what that is. You can go, okay, here's my patient, they've got pneumonia, they're 86, they live by themselves, they have not much social situa- um, support at home. What do they look like? What do they breathe like? How do they mobilise around? What treatment are we giving them? Are there any modifications in that treatment? Are we making allowances for things? And learn about what that means. Learn about how pneumonia works and how it will, the pathophysiology behind it and how it will get better eventually or it won't. Learn about if they've got congestive airways behind that, what that means. Can they exchange gas as well? Understand the pathophysiology behind that chronic illness and how it impacts upon other things. You have this this amazing resource and um, opportunity to learn constantly about anything in front of you and just pick something, anything. And it's, it's there at your fingertips. And I think it's also, you know, your patient is the expert often on themselves or, or, you know, not all patients but many of them will have a family member or someone who's really across it. So to be able to say, okay, I see you also have diabetes. How does that affect your life? Yeah. You know, what does that look like for you? How do you manage it? Yeah. Yeah. What supports are around you? Who else do you see in the community? And how does it affect your everyday life? And it's, that's a bit about chronic illness. It, is, it never goes away. It's, it may not require treatment all the time, but it most certainly will require management. Yeah. yeah and I think in terms of an education strategy, we're talking about a, a lot of the time either just in time. So we've got a patient with these symptoms and we're looking something up. So part of that education strategy is knowing what good resources are and how to appraise the quality of a resource. Um, which we will do more on a future episode, but also actually the reflective process and, and really deliberately creating structures. I really like mind maps um, as a way of thinking through conditions. So we've got, say, acute shortness of breath is a presenting complaint and working through the mind maps of those things. So yep. chronic chronic underlying disease versus no chronic underlying disease yep. is maybe one branch of that. And then what is the chronic underlying disease? What are the features of that? And, and you branch down that side and build up this big mind map. And that's kind of how you can deliberately start to form patterns and ways of thinking about these. So you're not yep. approaching every single case for the rest oh, of no, your career nobody. as an individual <laughs> thing. Hey. Nobody fits a box. No. Nobody. But you can apply definitely themes and, and structure to how you look at somebody and how you assess them. And the thing about nursing is we are assessing people all the time, Mm. all the time. And that is my third point that I lean into is that a patient assessment is a constant thing that nurses do sometimes without even thinking about it. There are plenty of formal ways that we do that. Um, And it's, I can break it into two ways. So if we look at the objective side of assessment and subjective side of assessment, I look at objective things to me talk about numbers and values and we collect data and number and values on patients all the time, whether that's our routine OBS or if we're doing a fluid balance chart or if we're a, a blood sugar level a glucose monitoring chart or if we just take blood tests, 
they're all numbers and values and they all mean that we assess, we then have a plan of care and we put it into action. So you've touched on there gathering this objective data. So we're doing our vital signs, our fluid balances, this me- these quantifiable measurable values that we gather in quite large repositories of data, I suppose, that are then recorded. The tricky thing about that is then fitting them to the patient and that's kind of augmented by a whole heap of subjective assessment and that art of observation rather than just routinely doing obs. And I, I think it's great to make that distinction between doing some obs, which yep, is kind of that task. parochial thing of task and usually yep. time-based because it's time to do our four-hourly obs yes. versus assessment and deliberate observation. Yes, and that interpretation into what we then do as an action with that. And I think that's a skill that you learn over time with nursing. You come out and it's something that's a, it's a process that just becomes instinct and you take the data. Yes, you do the job, you collect and you observe and you assess your patient constantly, but it's that nuance of being able to go, oh, that patient wasn't walking like that the other day when I saw them and being able to recognise deterioration in the numbers, yes, but then connect it with the patient who's sitting in front of you. Um, I think it's very important with chronic illness to understand what's normal for that patient also in that sometimes a value of, uh, let's say, a person who's got chronic kidney disease who has a creatinine of 120, that might be completely normal for them. But in somebody else, it might mean that they have an acute kidney injury. Mm. So it's it's good to, it goes back to educating yourself, knowing what's wrong and knowing how that applies to your patient in the context of their background history and chronic illness, I guess, in the light of their acute illness, which is why they're here. Um, and it, it's, it's a jigsaw. We have to put the pieces together. We move towards making the patient well so that they don't need to be here. And even in the outpatient space, so my focus is recognising deterioration, preventing deterioration, but also keeping them out of ED and keeping them well. I aim to look at our high-risk patients who I know may become more unwell than others um, because of their background history, because of what they bring with them, because of their disease process or burden, because of the treatment that we're giving them, to put it all together and to to prevent them come becoming unwell or to recognise it early and be able to shorten the trajectory of it. Bring it back to this chronic patient group, the difference is there's often it's in the subtleties and we can only really gauge that through knowing what their baseline yep. is like in terms of what their effort of breathing is like. What Are your legs that, that sort of puffy normally? Yep. How often do you go to the toilet usually? All of those sort of baseline functions. Yep. Um, and, and sometimes that's not something we recognise until we've known the patient for a day or two since they've been in here. Like we, uh, I don't know what your baseline is. And I can probably think of a, a um, probably a good example, if, if that's all right, um, about a lady who um, has a background of anxiety and we gave them, we gave steroids a lot. We give a lot of steroids in our treatment Um to help with nausea prevention and inflammation of disease and there's plenty of actions for what we use steroids for, but it can make people really unwell. It can make their mood swings. It can make them, in some cases, we have had episodes of psychosis. It can just really send people off the rocker, if you want to say. But 
it's also we don't know what the patient's baseline is. Mm. So are we exacerbating things or is this just what's normal for them? And I guess I will have a word of caution in that it's easy sometimes to go, oh, you've got pain but you've known to have metastatic disease or you've, you're short of breath but we know that you've got COPD or we know that you've got asthma or we know you've got – so that's what that is. And it's good not to anchor yourself to something just on the thought that that's what it is, that everything needs to be investigated if somebody has a background of angina and ischemic heart disease, if they've got chest pain, you can't just go, well, that's just their normal angina. You need to be making sure that we investigate. And that's what we have our tools for. That's what we use our collecting of objective data for so that we can recognise subtleties in the ups and the downs and be able to act upon that if we need to. And I guess then that brings the thing of tweaking the sensitivity of the system. So like QADs, for example, if uh, in a chronic respiratory disease patient, making sure we've set the right targets for that patient so that we haven't got an overly sensitised no, system. It's, it's how we nurse really well, I think, because we can be um, specific to that patient need mm. and we can assess the patient each time and we – we don't just set and forget either. That's the other thing too. So you can recognise things as they go along. And some chronic patients can live with some pretty extraordinary symptoms or physiology, can't they? Yeah, they can. And equally, I've got a, a friend who's been having cancer treatment and was admitted to hospital recently and ended up in ICU because for bradycardia, but actually he's just really fit and so a heart rate of 47. What a lovely you know, like problem he, to have. Yeah, he kept <laughs> saying, this is normal for me, this normal. is normal, but had two days in ICU while everyone was really anxious before they went, oh, no, this is normal. Yeah, but isn't that great that we have the system, that we live in a place where we have that health system that will keep someone safe like that, mm. that will throw the everything at them so that we can give them the best possible health care we can. Yeah. So you, I noticed you've already used this phrase in the conversation, but your number five point is putting the jigsaw puzzle together. All those pieces of the acute presentation, the chronic presentation and who this patient actually is as a person. How do we put all that together? What are your tips? <laughs> Patience. Um, my tips are that you, you trust your instincts and you take every aspect of your patient and you don't leave anything out. Um, you know, that child song that the hip bone's connected to your knee bone? It is. Um, so if somebody has a, a kidney problem, they're most likely going to have a cardiac problem. If they're going to have a breathing problem, they're probably going to have a cardiac problem as well. If their mobility is poor, they're going to have circulation problems. So everything goes together and very rarely is it just one thing. Putting that jigsaw together takes – it takes practice and – and skill, yes, but there's little tea tips that you can can look at. I always say to people who I'm educating or people who are new and starting uh, to be to listen to what people aren't telling you, mm. to listen to the cues of how they move, how they interact, how they speak to the person beside them. What they're not telling you is sometimes really important. Um, how they swallow and eat or how they, they walk well, or, uh, it's just... It's instinct. I think, I think some of it is in the phrasing of questions and that's, that's definitely I, – I really try and – it's very easy to just say, oh, you've got to develop your communication skills but that's just such a massive gamut of things from both expressive communication and receptive communication. 
we've talked about this and we'll continue to talk about this, uh, that we don't actively listen to understand enough most of the time. Our default's listening to gather enough data to fix the problem quickly. Yeah, and I will say in there too that a lot of times patients cannot articulate what they mean well. They can't tell you what's what their symptoms are and they definitely a lot of times can't tell you what their fears are mm. that then prevent them from communicating as well as what we would all like. But we often ask the inferential questions as well. So um, do you use a walking aid at home? Yeah. No, I don't. So we then infer from that that their mobility is pretty good. But then you actually – they don't, they don't, they don't realise that the walking aid's the chair and the wall. Absolutely. So, if you're, uh, so an alternative question is how, how do you get around? So describe to me how you get from your chair to the bathroom yep. at home. Yeah. And like nudge for descriptives of that, especially yep. if it's fitting with someone you've just seen shuffle in here holding onto the <laughs> arm of a care, uh, their carer or family member. Yep. Well, and you may say to them, yeah. how about a wheelie walker at home? And they'll go, no, I'm not having that thing. And I'm like, oh, I always say to people, well, the floor comes up pretty quick, yeah. you yeah. know, and perhaps it's not about a disability. It's about keeping you safe. And I, look, I want to come circle back around. You know, you mentioned that mental health was the most chronic problem that people come in. It's a, a comorbidity that uh, certainly a lot of people yep. identify as having. We haven't kind of talked about the psychosocial components of that, but it can also be very crippling or people who have chronic stress at home or yep. people who are admitted and worried about pets. All of those things can exacerbate acute and chronic symptoms, can't they? Absolutely. Um, and that goes back to how well you communicate with somebody. We use lots of tools, yes, but tools aren't subtle mm. and they're not personal either. Um, I, I use the example of we've got a checklist of an assessment tool that goes with common toxicities and it's it's a list. And, you know, you can hear nurses go, have you been nauseated? Have you been, you know, do you feel confused? Have you had a rash? Have you? Mm. But you can have a conversation with somebody and you can get all those points yeah. if you – train yourself and you get into having just having a chat to somebody mm. and about their last few days or how they've been at home or things that are worrying them and you'll get all those information you'll get that information out of somebody but it won't be a a tick box it'll be something that you deduce through the conversation that you have with them and understanding somebody's fears and anxieties and appreciating them comes with that kind of conversation I think it, when people use checklists, I say it's the difference between getting a history or getting facts and getting an assessment. They're completely different things. Yeah. One is like, are you nauseated? Yes, no. Yep. Do you have a rash? Yes, no. Whereas you go, how's your skin at the moment? Yeah. You know, oh, it's dry and I am a bit flaky on my bottom. Yeah. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Right. Where if, yeah. if you say, is, do you have a rash? Yes, no. <laughs> you yeah. Know, you don't, you <laughs> do you, don't do you learn those things. No. Yeah. You there's a difference. One is like getting some facts. The other is building a relationship. And when people – people feel it, don't they? They feel when you're getting a checklist as opposed to having a conversation. And once someone starts to relax, once someone thinks this person seeing me as a human rather than diabetes or yep. kidney failure um, – there's something different, more precious that's going on that is actually likely to lead to better care and higher safety. Yes, I couldn't agree more. I do want to say that it's not something 
it's rare to see that the older I get, I realize it's rare to see that in somebody who's just new in the profession. It's something that you learn with time and and skill and repetition. Repetition. Of, of knowing yep. and learning how to get the best out of somebody, whether that's your patient, your colleague, the, the nurse, whoever it is. You can, it, it's, it's a time thing. And you shouldn't think that you can just do this off the bat. Yeah. Like some people just don't have that um, soft, I don't know softness isn't the right word, but that ability to form a connection really well that encourages that conversation that comes from both sides. And that's okay. And that's why we have other things to help support that along the way. And it's also why we, uh, none of us work in isolation here. None mm. of, like there's a huge team around us, whether that's your multidisciplinary team and your allied health or the doctors or radiology who see them. We all gather information from every point that the patient has contact with us and we all work together. It's just that nursing has that constant opportunity and that constant observation. We are the person in front of the patient all of the time, all of the time. Perfectly acknowledging that this doesn't happen. Uh, you're, you're a new grad coming out. The expectation is not for you to be able to do this on yeah. autopilot. But having the goal to be able to actually, the, the example of gathering an admission history, when, when we're admitting a patient to the ward, it's come up from ED and we've got to do our admission paperwork. Having a goal to be able to do that without the paperwork in front of you because that's going to be freeing. So actually starting off with doing it with that as a checklist. Yep then integrating that into that being a framework that you work by. And the, and uh, you, you see these experienced nurses that have just practised and reflected and got so good at this that they'll go and sit on sit next to the patient at the bed, talk to them for 15 minutes, Get come everything. back and fill in the checklist and have like all, these other in, all this other information as well that can be integrated into that. So I, I guess it's setting that goal to actually be able to have these conversations that incorporate all of the necessary tick box information but you get so much more because you're just sitting down and not having a piece of paper between you and that person. And look I remember being even a baby social worker doing psychosocial assessments like there's a big responsibility you know like with nursing you make a mistake someone could harm themselves or others and that's on you and I think you get through this stage where you're just you're so reliant on the checklist because you just don't want to make a mistake. But if you just recognise this time too will pass, yeah, it does. will become more familiar, you get out of your own head, more present with where you are, there's a developmental component to this. But knowing, as as you guys are saying, like that's the goal. Yeah. That's the goal. That's mm. what I love about my job. I am mildly terrified every day by what I don't know and it drives me to know more, to find the answer and be able to apply it to my patients so that they, I am improving their outcomes, I'm improving their every day. Can I just say, Sue, I'm a little bit terrified about trying to uh, summarise these oh, five no. things. <laughs> <laughs> so by all means, please jump in and give a hand. So your number one was define acute versus chronic. So acute is something that's rapid, perhaps new, people are, are sick in a way that they're not normally and they're, they're presenting with that. Yep. Fair? It impacts their everyday, I like, can't function in their everyday life. Yes. Uh, a chronic illness is something that is often in the background, ongoing, uh, never free of, probably never going to be cured of. And it can be something like asthma, arthritis, or something as chronic as diabetes, renal failure, uh, yep. you know, oncology. The, um, the guidelines talk about life-limiting 
um, illness yep. and also something that impacts your ability to live your life to the fullest. Yeah. So it's something that has daily impact on you. Yeah, great. Your number two was educate yourself and I loved this. This is like educate yourself not only on the diseases, not only on the acute presentations but on your actual patient. Absolutely. Understand who this person is in the context of a chronic illness and an acute illness and I guess, uh, you know, often complex social lives and feelings and emotions and personalities and everyone else, everything that goes along with that. Your number three was patient assessment and first of all you spoke about what's the objective data that we're trying to look at, what's quantifiable. Uh, So fluid balances, blood tests, um, tasks that you need to do as a result. And then patient assessment for number four looked at subjective assessment. And this is the art of observation. I think Jesse referred to it too. It's that deliberate interpretation of what does the objective, um, objective data tell us about this actual person with this presentation, with this history and chronic back, you know, background. And then your number five is putting the jigsaw puzzle pieces all together. So what do I need to understand about the chronic nature of what this person has in amongst this acute presentation in this actual ward, in this hospital, as my patient with a whole life going on around them? Sounds great. (laughs) It sounds like a lot, doesn't it? It It felt big, but it's such an important topic. So thank you. Can I just say also, I want to add on the end that to say thank you to both of you for providing this opportunity and this this resource for everyone to do what you're doing is amazing. I just I think it's really great. I'm, I'm so proud to be part of a an organisation that supports something like this to happen to support our nurses and support anybody who wants to listen and learn to something. Great, thank Thanks you. So much, it it takes a village, right? It takes a village. We've all got our parts to play. Great. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at lizcrow 2 And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to Five Things 